0: Hello and welcome back to We Not Me the podcast where we explore how humans connect to get stuff done together. I'm Dan Hammond
1: and I am Pierre Lee.
0: Pear, you know we've we've spent a lot of time on this show talking about uh the dangers of division and and in the last few episodes we've had a huge division happening globally in um Israel and uh and in gaza obviously and we've 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 sort of been concerned with other topics but it's probably time to touch on that in a sensitive way i think and i think you you and i have both been listening to quite a lot of material on this subject and whether we understand it or not i think it's uh fully it's worth uh worth a little little worth a little chat i think as we get into this episode
1: well i mean it it is you know and once again you know war comes in and um and it's it's amplified through social media, and then we're asked to have an opinion about something that is actually extremely complex, and um and and has had there's that bias of recency, and I'm not condoning anything, but we have one big event, and suddenly everybody seems to have an opinion about Israelis and Palestinians when we haven't actually even th- been thinking about it necessarily. <laughs> two months ago. So,
0: yeah, and I've certainly seen that, you know, on social media for a start, your opinions have to be very short because there's not really room in a post very often, particularly on Twitter, which is a particularly divisive platform right now, I think. Um, But, you know, it has to be short, but also I've seen people really being attacked if they, if they're in any way um, trying to be see both sides or hope for the best, but you know, sort of you know it, it's 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 like a hair trigger it seems um it's really tricky I think in that environment
1: yeah well, you would think that we would sort of be um, balanced and we would be inquiring and we would utilize you know we, we we're meant to be becoming more intelligent and more sort of maybe systemic thinking as human beings but what social media can do is um, by the by that Peer group pressure force you into very simplistic thinking and taking sides, which is then preying on people's vulnerability of feeling liked or part of a group, or you know. So it's it's highly manipulative. Whereas um, I was listening to um, Scott and Cara on Pivot, you know, that we listened to that, and they they were both feeling that they were not in a position to give. Comment, as in, to make a judgment on one side or the other, because they actually felt that they just did not know enough. And sometimes it's better to listen. And Scott talks about this: it's better to listen. It's a more leadership position to seek input and listen rather than 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 kind of get your kicks out of your own opinion which may be incorrect and may not help the situation.
0: Yeah. So it's a good place to go for leaders who are expected sometimes to talk about these things is not about the facts, but about your, about your hopes and the, in the values that you share, you know, so so we should listen. We hope for peace. We hope for shalom, you know, as we saw. Um, And um, we hope that that this can be worked out. Uh, interesting that this, this sounds potentially partisan, but I heard an interview with the British ambassador, pal- the ambassador, the Palestinian ambassador to the UK, who's um, Sam Zomlot. And, you know, he said that this is the political leadership in the world is so poor at the moment. We just don't see what we used to see in the past. So, um, you know, even our, our, our own prime minister from the UK arrived in Israel. Great, but the things he said were just inflammatory, and um, and it's not helpful. It's not helpful. We're not seeing people zooming above the thing and saying, "Okay, let's try." Try to understand both sides. Um, however awful that is, and how difficult, however difficult it, is. it has been done in other conflicts, Northern Ireland, for example, seemed intractable. But when you started to listen and try to move on, it it was very hard. But it's it can be done. But I, the, I think we've said a few times we weren't evolved for social media. We, we haven't evolved. We're not ready. We weren't ready, and this has shown it. And um, in an incredibly nifty segue, we're going to uh, be looking at
1: evolution <laughs> today. <laughs> talk about jackdaws which may seem a very strange segue but i think i think there's a whole thing let's talk about it afterwards there's a whole thing about what could we learn about evolution here as human beings and uh we tend to think that we we run the show but actually um when we talk to alex i think we're going to learn that learn that we should maybe be eating a little bit more humble pie
0: yes indeed alex has a wonderful story to tell me t- and uh about his exploration of animal evolution of all kinds, including the kind of animal we are as humans. So let's go and hear from Alex now.
1: And a really warm welcome to Professor Alex Thornton. Welcome.
2: Thank you very much. Lovely to be here.
1: Now We're going to learn a lot more about you, um, but you are a professor of cognitive evolution at Exeter University in the UK. And um, we're looking forward to a conversation about both animals, two-legged, four-legged, and probably the relationship to humans. So I know you do experiments on animals and you you look at things. So um, Dan's going to do a little experiment on you and raise your blood pressure by getting you to answer um, a question from the starter starter cards. So um, just observe how you feel, and then we'll we'll record the feedback later.
2: <laughs> Holy smokes! Okay, I'm ready.
1: So I have a
0: an a, a sort of amber or orange card here, um, which we haven't had before, which is great. Um, if I were a historic figure, I would like to be this
2: person. Hmm. I'd like to be someone who had a lot of fun. He's someone who had a lot of fun, but without necessarily being evil. That's the, uh, that's, the, that's the tricky balance to strike. Yeah, I don't know. Possibly, possibly an explorer of some kind. I mean, okay. The obvious answer as a biologist is it's got to be Charles Darwin, doesn't it? Excellent.
0: Excellent. Well tell us a bit about, about him. I, I, living in Ilkley as I do, I know he spent some time in eighteen fifty nine in Ilkley recovering from his ailments, or trying oh, to. Did he? Yeah.
2: did he have his hat on or off?
0: Uh, <laughs> well, I think with the treatment he got would require hat off. Um, but tell us why why Charles Darwin? Tell us a little bit about about
2: a little bit about him. Well I suppose I mean Charles Darwin is is the originator of Quite possibly the greatest idea that any human being has ever had, as far as I'm concerned, and as far as I think many scientists are concerned. So he allowed us to understand the nature of the world, why it is that there is so much diversity in the world, um, the conception of humans as part of the world rather than as being apart from the rest of uh, the rest of life. Um, and you know, we're still working on his ideas to this day. And you know, aside from that he had a he had an exciting life you know he traveled around on the beagle seeing the world being astounded being i suppose the nice thing about darwin is that he was he was a pure scientist in the sense of he was totally childlike he was just curious about the world in the same way that kids wander around going why is this happening why is that happening and why is that beak? bird's beak a different shape to that other bird and uh, and you know that led to some really fundamental ideas um that you know people i suppose often don't realize the number of different contexts in which darwin's ideas affect us right so you for example if you've ever been into hospital and you're worried about an mrsa infection you know that that is an an evolutionary process and that we understand largely as a result of things that darwin taught us so so yeah i think being darwin would be hard to beat fantastic well if we if we have a chance to beam you back
0: to be charles Darwin for a little while we'll 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 definitely let you know All
2: right, um, <laughs> my facial hair growth.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was impressive wasn't it um <laughs> so but let 's talk about the actual um your actual life t- t- talk us a bit about yeah what what
2: brought you to this point. Here today. Yeah. What brought me to this part? I actually grew up in, in a huge city. I grew up in Mexico City. Um, my my mum's Mexican, my dad's English. And yeah, because I grew up in this massive, massive city, I didn't see that many animals in my day-to-day life. But <laughs> my parents used to take me out to, to the countryside and I was always fascinated by, you know, the beasties that I, I used to see out there. Um, I used to spend lots of my time as a small uh Kind of only child as well maybe this is informative um kind of sitting there copying pictures out of the encyclopedia of mammals and things like that and so I always knew I wanted to do something animally but I didn't really know what that could be you know the obvious thing that people kept saying is I oh, should be a vet I didn't really want to stick my hand up a cow's bum so <laughs> uh so I didn't become a vet Then I moved to the UK less appealing Less appealing, but, you know, I'm glad that they are around. You know, yes, you know, yes, indeed, bless them. Yeah, but, uh, you know, a bit like doctors. It's fantastic that these people exist, but I couldn't do it. Um, yeah, so then I moved to the UK as a teenager, and I went on to study biology in Oxford, and then I remember in a lecture just got really hooked on this idea that we could think about how, not only how animals' bodies evolve, but how behaviour evolves and how it is that behaviour fits to the surroundings that animals find themselves in, so the match between behavior and the environment. And obviously that's something that um, is relevant to understanding all animals, including humans. Um, I started getting really interested as well in the idea that that it's not just humans who learn from each other, but animals can learn from each other as well. And um, so then I went off to do a, a PhD, studying those sorts of questions, studying meerkats in the Kalahari Desert. Where I was particularly interested in, in understanding how does a little baby meerkat grow up to be a fully functioning adult because they're cute but they're useless when they're babies they can't do anything um, so they've got to learn how to hunt how to avoid predators all of these sorts of things and you know one of the questions I was looking at is uh, might the adults help by teaching them and at the time it was thought that humans are the only animal that teaches it turns out the meerkats teach. Um, so, And then that set the scene for a whole bunch of other work looking at how information spreads through groups. And yeah, then I started getting more interested in questions around how intelligence evolves. So meerkats are brilliant, but they're not particularly bright animals. But at the time, there was lots of research coming out from um, particularly from Nicky Clayton's lab in Cambridge and uh, Thomas Pugnia's lab in, in Vienna and Austria. Showing that birds of the crow family were remarkably clever. So, you know, almost anything that a primate could do in a psychological test, these birds were capable of doing. They've got extremely big brains relative to their body size. But because people had just studied them in labs, we didn't really have much of an idea of. You know, what are they using these big brains for in their in their daily lives? So then I started studying um, birds of the crow family in their natural environment to try and understand well, what challenges do they face? How does that shape the evolution of intelligence? Um, and yeah, at the same time, I was getting interested in what is it that makes human culture so distinctive? So we've got a bit of a, a line of work looking at uh, elements of that as well in people.
1: Am I correct that ravens are in the Tower of London. Now, is there anything to do with their big brains? Or is that just a feature <laughs> of history? I'm just wondering whether there's I've just stumbled on something or it's is that 2, utterly plus two irrelevant. equals six. Yeah. yeah, that could be. Could be. Um,
2: well probably a bit of both, I think. Um so I mean they're kept in the Tower of London. They're not there of their own kind of free will if you like. Um but you know they are they're, they're tame birds who live there. And I think the interesting thing is that basically every human culture that has corvids, birds of the crow family living around it, has myths and legends about these birds. And I think in large part that's because they've got very big brains, they're often associated with wisdom, they live alongside us, so they're very good at exploiting opportunities that people provide. And so they've always been around. We actually had an archaeologist come to work with us last year who was looking at covid remains in human burial grounds and how attitudes to to these birds have changed over the years you know we used to they used to be primarily associated with with wisdom and they still are in you know many native american tribes for example um and then you know with the advent of christianity in part they started to be become more associated with with death and darkness um and so i think there's always been this tension that you know they're they're clever and fascinating but also a bit scary.
1: That's really interesting. What what are they using their big brains for?
2: Yeah, that's a very good question. And I suppose that, that is at the core of all the research that I'm trying to do. And if I could give you the definitive answer, then I could retire. Um, so you know, we're well, I don't know if I'd be rich. No, no anyone just... pay me for that, probably not. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I, I mean, I suppose it seems to be related to the fact that these birds are a. They're very, very generalist. So you know, lots of animals have have specialist niches where you, know, you specialise on doing one thing and one thing really well. Um, what the COVID seems to be good at is doing lots of things very well. So they're jacks of all trades. And so that means that when when environments change, they're able to, to adapt their behavior, so they're very flexible behavior. Um, and a lot of them live in, in very complex societies. And so this is something that's been argued to be at the core of why we as humans are so intelligent, that you know, people say, if you reflect on your own life, this is probably true. One of the hardest things we need to do is manage relationships, deal with other people, know how to respond to other people depending on what they've done to us in the past and their interactions with others and so on. And so people have argued that the need to keep track of all that kind of social information is one of the things that has favoured the evolution of intelligence in humans. And we've got evidence that probably the same is true in, in other animals, including these birds of the crow family. So the birds I study mostly, I study jackdaws which their their societies are quite similar to ours in some senses. They form these kind of long-term pair bonds. So you've got, you know, almost like a marriage with this pair raising their offspring, but then that's embedded within a very dynamic social network where individuals have, you know, they've got their partner, but they've also got friends and acquaintances and there's individuals coming and going. So the groups aren't stable, but they, you know, they change over time. So, you know, in the winter you'd get, thousands and thousands of birds coming together in a winter roost. And then during the breeding season, they'd be mostly hanging around with individuals from their own breeding colony. So there's a lot of information to keep track of. And we've been doing some experiments recently to try and understand, actually, is it is it the case that they are keeping track of this information? Can they gain benefits from doing so?
0: And and where where is that? I was just my brain went into a right old spin there, trying to think about cause and effect here. So is it a, um, presumably it's an evolutionary benefit for the COVID to, for them to form these bigger groups in, in some way, they get some benefit from that. And then that in turn over time has led to larger brains and therefore larger intelligence. Is that the, is that the flow of this?
2: Yes. I mean, I suppose what probably what's going on is that there are, there are feedback loops where, you know, coming together in, in groups can provide a lot of different benefits. So for example, it reduces risk of predation. Um, it also creates problems because once you're together with a bunch of individuals, that creates competition. And groups vary, right? So some groups are, for example, the meerkats I used to work with live in primarily family groups, um, where in a sense that's it's slightly easier because everybody's interests are largely aligned. Whereas uh, the, the jackdaws that I study now they have families but these families are embedded within larger groups which will contain relatives and non-relatives so so there's more potential for for conflict there or to need to kind of keep track of all the different dynamics that are happening within the group in order to make sure that you can you can benefit from that and you know what we find is that actually the the structure of societies that emerges from individual decisions. So if you imagine each individual in the society is deciding, okay, who am I going to hang out with? How am I going to interact with them? That scales up and that produces the structure of the overall society. And so we get these interesting feedback loops where, you know, an animal's cognition, the things that it's using to make decisions, then generate society. And then that feeds back into what it's using its brain for. It's interesting how we can lose track of whether you're talking about corvids or humans when you're talking about this, these yeah. individual decisions. Yeah. Well, I think yeah, to, that's part of what makes these ideas interesting is that they they apply you know across both humans and other animals.
0: And in terms of we talked about the, you talked about brain size. In terms of brain structure, how is there anything about the the crow's brain and moving into the human brain? Are, are there any? similarities that cause this um or any marked differences
2: yeah i mean at the moment we have we have a very poor understanding of of, kind of the neuroscience the neurobiology that generates intelligence And i think that's true in in both humans and in in other animals we, you know, we're piecing things together um, but you know, research is still relatively in its infancy but there are some interesting parallels so for example in in humans and other primates um one of the kind of largest areas of the brain is the neocortex, which is thought to be associated with with complex forms of cognition, particularly social cognition. And birds don't have a neocortex, their brain is structured in a completely different way to a mammal's brain. But they've got a structure called the nidopallium, which is analogous. And interestingly, in corvids and in parrots, that is very enlarged compared to other birds. So that's similar. Uh, The other thing that's really interesting is, so if you think in absolute terms, you know, the brain of a crow is much smaller than the brain of a monkey, but the brain of a crow has twice the neural density. So in a given space, you're packing in twice as many neurons. So that means that actually the number of neurons in a crow's brain is pretty much the same as the number of neurons in in a primate's brain. So, you know, they're very, very densely packed. Um, so again you know it's not really clear what what's the exact relationship between the number of neurons and kind of information processing capacity but if you think of it as you know the metaphor of your computer the processing power of a computer then you know you would expect there to be some kind of relationship
1: um and tell me a little bit about um the dynamics of these crows and jackdaws are there is there a leader amongst them is there? Is is there a pecking order or a hierarchy what's the like how does that work and how does that relate and could be similar to to the way that humans structure themselves
2: yeah well there's a few things to say there I suppose there so if you went back and read the literature on jackdaws you, know, you could go and read the old papers um, then it will tell you that these birds have a have a strict dominance hierarchy so a strict pecking order um, we've looked into that and I think it's probably a lot more complicated than that. Um, so the problem is that these birds are interacting with so many different individuals. So if you only look at, for example, birds who live in nests very close to each other, among those guys, there may well be a pecking order. And that's useful because you know, you know it basically reduces conflict. So there's no point challenging the top dog because he's definitely gonna beat me up, so you know, I won't bother. Um, but because they're meeting so many different individuals, and some of those individuals they might meet regularly, some of them they might meet once in a blue moon. There's actually a lot of uncertainty, and so actually uncertainty is what drives cognition. So the whole point of cognition, of using your brain, is to reduce uncertainty. So if everything was you know very very simple, and I know that you know whenever I meet Dan, I'm always going to lose. I'm not going to bother challenging him. It's very predictable. Um, then you know that probably isn't particularly cognitively challenging. But if the situation is much more flexible and dynamic, such that you know maybe I will beat him if my partner's with me, um, but I won't under other circumstances or whatever, then there's there's a lot more information to keep track of. So, so yeah, it does seem that there is a pecking order of sorts, but it's very fluid. I suppose the other thing that I'd say relating to your point, you asked if there are leaders. Um, I mean, one of the things that we found with jackdaws is that they actually operate in certain circumstances, uh, a democratic voting process where there is no leader. Individuals are casting votes. So we find this when they're leaving the roost in the morning. Wow. So yeah, I mean, here you have you have a situation where you've got hundreds or possibly thousands of birds and they all come and spend the night in these, in these roosts during the winter. And then in the morning, they've got a bit of a problem because every individual is going to have slightly different preference as to when to leave depending on how much you fed the previous day you know whether you had a good night's sleep whether you're with your partner and your kids and so on but the birds will really benefit if they all manage to figure out a way of all leaving together because then that's going to reduce risk of predation and it will help them to pick up information from each other. So what they do is they have a a vocal voting system. So if you go very early in the morning, you'll start to hear one or two birds just making a little call. And then more and more and more birds join in and you get this sudden crescendo. And if that crescendo sort of increases very, very steeply and reaches a big peak, then they all just leave spontaneously. So you can see, you know, thousands of birds just erupting out of a tree like a like a sudden black snowstorm
1: it's incredible that is amazing isn't it I mean that's quite it is quite democratic that that voting I guess the the poor crow that doesn't want to vote isn't going to get voted out really you will have to go with the with the majority in the end
2: yeah it makes sense to go with the majority and that's because otherwise you're going to be on your own in the roost and get picked off by a peregrine falcon
0: Quite, it's quite simple really isn't it yeah. and <laughs> that is fascinating and you've already Alex drawn loads of parallels to to humans or we and we've been drawing them you can see these things you've you have studied that particular animal as well haven't you the human what so what have you done um done
2: on that group so with humans I think the thing that interests me the most is why our culture is cumulative so we now know that lots of animals have culture so If you define culture as information that spreads through groups, through learning, and that generates differences between groups, so that's kind of the core of what culture is, really, it's it's learned information that spreads through groups, then we see culture in lots of different animals. So, you know, I'd see it in the meerkats that I was studying, where different groups of meerkats, for example, they had different waking up times in the morning. And those were traditional. They were passed down through the generations because they learned them from each other. So some lazy groups who like to have a lion in the morning. Some groups get up nice and early from the burrow and go off foraging. So that's, that's a simple form of culture in meerkats. Um, you know, in chimpanzees, we see lots of different forms of culture with different groups using different kinds of tools, different social rituals, and so on. But human culture seems to have this very distinctive property, which is that, um, you know, we we build on the shoulders of giants. So our culture gets ever more complex and efficient. Hence, you know, we're having this conversation via, you know, this electronic medium. And, you know, we've got Pia sitting in Australia and we're still having this conversation. Whereas, you know, if you think about it, only it wasn't that many generations ago in human history that we were banging a couple of rocks together. So what is it that has allowed our culture to accumulate in that way? And that seems to be something that, although other animals have culture, they're clearly not doing that to the same degree. You know, Other animals aren't sending people to the moon and stuff. Um, and so I'm really interested in, well, what is it that enables us to transmit culture in that way that we can kind of build upon what's come before? And one of the, the interesting things there seems to be the role of human teaching. So I mentioned that I found that meerkats teach um, and we know that there's, there's a handful of animals that are known to teach, but they all teach in very specific contexts. So meerkats teach their pups how to hunt, but they don't teach anything else. Whereas human teaching is open-ended. We can teach in you know, an Im- infinite number of contexts, really. we can. I can teach you something about the past or about an abstract concept. Um, crucially, I can teach you about things not to do. So from my own experience, I can't just show you can okay, do what I do, I can also help you to learn what, you know, what things might not work. And and we do that through language, largely. So, you know, I think the idea about kind of the role of language in enabling human teaching and how that's allowed us to generate increasingly complex culture. And again, that will, that will create these feedback loops, right? That once, you're, once you start to become more and more dependent, say, on tools that are very, they're too complicated for you to learn how to build them on your own, so then there's even more benefit from having mechanisms to transmit that information and to learn that information. So so I've been doing a lot of experiments looking at the role of different forms of learning in allowing humans to build up cultural complexity.
0: And I, I can see the long – that's fascinating – and I can see the really long flow of that over thousands of years. Is it? Have you learned anything about learning that we – that we should learn <laughs> if you like that we can we can take away that you you've seen that that's a, a particularly effective one accelerates development or um anything along those lines
2: well i think maybe one of the most useful things that i've learned is that there's there's just such a diversity of different ways that one could learn um and so to give you one example you know when i first started studying teaching in in meerkats at the time Psychologists made this argument that humans are the only animal that can teach, and that's because we have what's called theory of mind, which is the the idea that I can understand that you have thoughts and values and knowledge that might differ from my own. And so, if that's the case, then I could recognize if you're ignorant about something and intentionally set about to correct your ignorance. So, people argued, well, only humans have theory of mind, therefore, only humans can teach. Turns out, that meerkats almost certainly don't have theory of mind but they can teach perfectly well using quite simple mechanisms and and so that kind of got me thinking about well if we think about you know there's lots of different ways that one could arrive at teaching you know, if teaching is the is the end point it's the, it's the functional point which is basically helping somebody else to learn having thinking about the mental states of other individuals could be really useful, but it's not the only way to do that. And so that's led me to, with a, with a PhD student of mine, we've been doing some work on neurodiverse human populations because actually there's variation among people as well. So some people find it very intuitive to think in terms of other pe- what other people think and know. For other people, that's far less intuitive and automatic. So for example, for people with, with autism, often that's something that they you know they wouldn't automatically tend to reason in terms of okay you don't know this therefore i'm going to set about to correct your ignorance and you know going back there was you know during the 70s 80s even up to the 90s some people some psychologists were making wild claims suggesting that you know therefore people with autism would be incapable of teaching or would be somehow a cultural which is clearly nonsense and so i think if we can start to unravel different ways that people could transmit information that could also help to open up, you know, the ability to, I suppose, better incorporate the talents of neurodiverse people into societies to help, you know, so many of these people are phenomenally talented in many, many ways. Um, And so if we just assume, well, you know, their talents are locked within them, because they they aren't going to be able to transmit them. That's, that's clearly very stifling. So if we can begin to think about, well, how, what are the ways through which people can transmit this information most effectively? And, you know, it might differ between different people. Some people do it one way, some people might do it another way.
1: Do you see that neurodiversity when, you, when you're studying animals?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I suppose what we do see is we see incredible individual differences so it's, at the moment, it's not really clear whether those individual differences are due to kind of differences in, in cognitive styles. They could be due to a whole bunch of things. You know, they could be due to hormonal variation or differences in early life experience or whatever. Um, so why those differences exist is still quite open. But, you know, for example, when we study the jackdaws, one of the most striking things is every time we do an experiment which is, is actually quite annoying in many ways. It makes the data hard to analyze. Different individuals will respond, but they respond in different ways. So, I mean, to give you one example, a former PhD student of mine who, who you, I know you've spoken to on the podcast, Becky Hooper, she did an experiment to test whether jackdaws show consolation. So this is the idea that, you know, if, you're, if your partner's upset, has experienced something stressful, do you then go and console them? You know, do you go and give them a hug? Um, and so she did an experiment where she um, she created a, a mild stressor that these female jackdaws were exposed to when they were in the nest, so their male partner wasn't around. Something stressful happened, so she played back. Sounds that simulated an intruding male coming in, which is a bit of a stressful event. Um, so the females had something stressful that happened, and then the question is, well, what do the males do when they come back? Do they can they recognise that you know something the them missus is upset? <laughs> um, and and the cool thing was that they do they do seem to recognise that something is amiss because they respond, but different individuals respond in different ways. So some of them, as you might kind of naively expect would then increase their their cuddliness towards the female. They'd go and preen her and so on. But a lot of them would do exactly the opposite and would just leave. <laughs> so they'd be like, oh my God, something terrible's happened. I'm off. I'm out of here. Yeah. Um, which actually in many ways, if you think about it, might be a more sensible thing to do. Because if you've got information telling you that something stressful has happened, do you stick around in the same place where the stressful thing has happened? Because it might happen to you as well and given that these these pairs are raising kids together that's actually not good for the female either if something bad happens to the male as well
1: i mean that's a more of an emotional response rather than a rational response because i mean you know if you're if you're consoling your your partner jackdaw you're caring about them rather than you know necessarily thinking about your own gains or your you know what might happen to you?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, that's true. But I suppose as as evolutionary biologists, we always want to be thinking about, well, why would this evolve? So, you know, if it was the case that, um, you know, you've got this emotional response, which means that you stick around and you you cuddle your partner, and that means that you're both more likely to die, or, you know, it's going to reduce your chances of breeding, that's going to be selected out. So, So the question is, well, what are the benefits? And I suppose we always need, we think in terms of of economics, basically, you know, there's going to be costs and there's going to be benefits and things will only evolve if the benefits outweigh the costs.
1: Given the nature of, you know, your research, do you find yourself watching people in a party? Do do you find that, you know, sometimes a bit of a busman's holiday where you're taking this into social settings and thinking, I've seen that in a Jackdaw. I've, I've seen that. And now they're doing it. Yeah, all
2: the time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, which, you know, means it's 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 always fun. There's always something to watch. But yeah, I mean, humans are endlessly interesting and we do all sorts of stuff that most of the time we don't even realise that we're doing it. So, yeah, it is really interesting to, to kind of look at the dynamics. I remember, you know, I, I teach in a lot of field courses with students. Um, and, you know, just seeing some of the interactions, like we had one one young lad on a field course a couple of years ago who kept, when there, were, when there was a bunch of girls around, he kept sort of dropping to the floor and doing press-ups. It just, it's just, it's peacocking, isn't it? I mean, it's fantastic.
1: That's brilliant.
2: It's, what a legend.
0: Yeah, absolutely, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. full marks for trying,
2: definitely.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh. And I bet the girls were unimpressed. They didn't need any consoling. They were just like, "Oh God, <laughs>
0: here we go again." <coughs> That's just what
1: I'm looking for a, in a mate,
2: exactly.
0: <laughs> um, Alex, so um, thank you for all of those insights. But you, you've studied animal behavior across all kinds of types, including humans. If we think about groups of humans, what what could you leave the listener with the, everything you've seen? What, what's your What's your one little bit tip for? just helping these
2: little groups to work better together? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I'd come back to something we mentioned before, which is the idea of of embracing diversity, thinking about the fact that, you know, there are lots of different ways in which individuals can can contribute to science to society there's lots of different ways in which we can learn from each other and i think we often try and be very prescriptive so you know if we think about schools for example you know schools often have quite quite rigid curricula rigid ways in which we think this is the way that teaching should be done and you know because of that we often lose sight of the importance of creativity for example in in learning so i think trying to embrace that is is probably one of the most useful things that we can do fantastic
0: thank you and uh yeah i think it reinforces a point we've heard throughout which is around teaching and learning um and that's that's where it's going to come from so um wonderful stuff alex thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your wonderful insights it's been a a great conversation thank you it's been um, a
2: pleasure
1: especially liked the experiment when they stressed out the mrs Jackdaw <laughs> and and <laughs> the mrs jackdaws were were worried that there was a predator and then the Mr. Jackdaws returned to a flock of stressed females and the, and I think this says a lot about the way that we respond so there was that act of consoling i mean the thought of of a a jackdaw consoling is really quite quite an amazing thing. Oh, I loved thing. it. And then put your wing
0: around, yeah. <laughs>
1: put the wing around. Come here, love. It's okay. Come here. That's all right.
0: Don't worry. But then the worry. others,
1: well, they just flocked off. Really, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> well, and and
0: interesting, is it for for them? It's purely a an evolutionary choice.
1: They're just like, can't hang around. It's dangerous. Dangerous in here.
0: Exactly. And as he said, if you're consoling the missus, they're there, love. They're there. And you both get killed. You're, the progeny probably get killed as well. So it, there's a, and like, like the voting system, that sounds already nice, but it's actually so you don't get picked off by a large predator.
1: And <laughs> bring it back to, to the subject that we were talking about all the complex challenges in the Middle East really interesting because there you've got choices and the way that you're behaving for evolution. It was when one of the women that was released was an 85 year old who'd been a peace activist and she'd been harangued on the, taken on a motorbike, been beaten, been, you know, it wasn't, but the moment when she'd spent her entire life trying to create peace and, and supporting children from the Gaza Strip, when they released her, she reached back and shook hands with her captor, who reached out to her and warmly took her hand in. It was such an interesting thing to look at. And there's that moment of consolation or, you know, yeah, and hope. Yeah, that's
0: a consoling moment, isn't it? Yeah, and, and hope. And I and I think some of these folks are trying to kill kill hope and trying to rekindle it is important and i think from an evolutionary standpoint you know our corvid friends the jackdaw you know while they have structures in their brains that sort of seem to mimic this we as humans have a very large prefrontal cortex we shouldn't be run by our limbic brain which is about immediate threats family you know these more evolutionary things that, that 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 scan for threats and we have to make a conscious choice to say right You know, almost mentally, right? Maybe think in the front of my brain, at the top of my brain, but actually also think in a bigger way. We're not seeing that enough at the moment. I know it's going to be very hard for anyone on the ground to to even do that, but there are people outside that that sort of um, world who can – not follow their evolutionary instincts to strike back or to um to overly react or whatever, but to try to get above it. It's very hard on the ground, obviously, but there are those who the world leaders who could who could do that. And I think we can all do that in our conversations in the pub is get above to that picture of um of peace and handshaking and hope. Um yeah, so um we don't have to follow all our evolutionary instincts all the time. But um that is it for this interesting episode where we've been very serious but also had a wonderfully light-hearted but and scientific conversation about jackdaws uh, so i hope you've enjoyed it if you have enjoyed the show please do uh share the love and recommend it to your friends um you can find show notes at squadify.net under resources if you'd like to contribute to the show just email us at we not mepod at gmail.com we're not me is produced by mark Stedman of origin thank you so much for listening It's goodbye
1: from me. And it's goodbye from me.